Hello, and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spaulding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. This version of the podcast is the first half of a longer version, which is available to Research Bites members. If you would like more information on that membership, it will be available at the end of the podcast. For now, please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. Today's guest is Dr. Adam McLoshi. He is a full professor and the leader of the Department of Ethology at Utfush University in Budapest, Hungary. He is also the co-founder and leader of the Family Dog Project, which studies human-dog interaction from an ethological perspective. Over more than 20 years, the Family Dog Project has published over 180 scientific papers and organized several conferences. In recent years, Dr. McLoshi has also become interested in the automization of measuring dog behavior, and his research group has pioneered the study of the neural and genetic aspects of dog behavior using non-invasive methods like fMRI and EEG. In 2014, McLoshi published the second edition of an academic volume called Dog Behavior, Evolution, and Cognition by Oxford University Press. It summarizes the most recent status of dog-oriented research. More recently, together with his colleagues, he published The Dog, A Natural History with Ivy Press in London. In this episode, we talk about meeting the needs of dogs, approaches to training, imitation, self-awareness, exceptional word learning capabilities in certain dogs, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. It's nice to meet you again. Yes, I'm really looking forward to our talk today. So you are the head of the Family Dog Project in the Department of Ethology at Utvush uh, Lorand University in Budapest, Hungary. Yes, that's 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 I, I am. Yes, I'm actually the, one of the founders. Is I think yes. it's better to say it's like this. So we founded the Family Dog Project together with Vilmos Chani, uh, my professor, and and Jozef Topal, my former colleague at the department. Okay, perfect. And that was in 1990. Well, you founded it in 1994, is that correct? Because originally yeah, you guys official. were doing... Actually, yes, we had to decide it later because we because at the, at the time of the founding, there was not really a very serious thing to do. So we decided that actually it was founded in 1994, officially. <laughs> That's okay, it. right. Because originally you guys were studying fish, correct? Yes, yes. I, that was my uh, my first uh, subject, and also then it became the topic of my PhD. Yes. Okay. And I know when you started, dogs were really not considered a very interesting or valuable species to study. Yes, that's true. So it was actually quite it's quite interesting that you know about a lot of researchers, especially people on in animal behavior or ornithologists, that actually they had a dog at home. I mean privately. And despite of this, uh, there was really nothing in the literature or just very few papers here and there about dog behavior. So it was really strange for us that when we were looking for some sources, mm-hmm. then we couldn't find any good papers. And actually that was also encouraging in some sense that it be <laughs> entering a new territory which also was actually very new for the reviewers when we sent in the first papers <laughs> of behavior. So it was sort of a funny time. So let's put it this way uh, in the 90s. Yeah. And really, I mean, I just have to say thank you to you, to you guys there, because you really have 
totally changed. I mean, you really kind of founded the field, honestly. And I think that our dog world would look very different today if it wasn't for this research that you guys started doing in the 90s. Well, it's interesting because sometimes science is sort of having this feeling that science is going ahead and then others are sort of following. And I also should add that we were not alone. So mm-hmm. at the same time, actually, basically on that same years, there was another group in, in Germany, Leipzig, uh, led by Mike Tomasello. And uh-huh. he had a PhD student, actually an American PhD student at that time, Brian Hare, who mm-hmm. they were thinking very very much along right. the same lines. So, and there are some other few people who joined later from Italy. So it was yep. a small but very enthusiastic group of researchers who started uh, the dogitology. Let's say again in right. the end of the last century. I could shoot it. Say yes. That. And so, what was it that prompted you guys to move from fish to dogs? What were the specific research questions that you thought were interesting there? Well, the interesting research question was, I mean, what I already said, that there was no research. So it's right. always good to see something which we think has been interesting. And then there was no other people there, I mean, from the research groups. And also the real question was really the is interesting from a biological point of view and also from an ecological point of view that there was this very special, or actually there is this very special relationship between a, a, an animal, the dog, and, and people, humans. And the question is, okay, how this could have evolved? And and obviously we, mm-hmm. the other good situation is that we have still the, the living um, partners of the ancestors. So obviously the, the wolves of today are not the same as yeah. the real ancestors yeah. of the wolves, but we have, this is a close Similarity, let's put it this way. So it was very interesting to see how an animal can evolve to actually move from relatively wild state to become a partner of a very strange social being uh, of of humans. And the question was what kind of biological changes there should occur at the level of the behavior, at the level of the genes, at the level of the brain. So all these questions were already asked at that time. Right. So trying to figure out what was it that happened that allowed wolves or the ancestors of wolves to make this transition to living so closely with people. Well, it was not just what happened because obviously that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And actually it's very funny that many people came up since then. I mean, about domestication, I'd call them domestication theories. So what what might have happened? What were the causal factors, you know, that makes this change? This is very difficult to find out after 15 or especially Mm -hmm. 20,000 years. Actually, what happened in terms of the dog's biology Right. And, and obviously we are ethologists, so we are interested in behavior. So what is the behavior difference from a wolf to the dog? And also what is the behavior similarity on the part between a human and the dog that makes this cohabita- cohabitation uh, possible at all? Yeah, and so that kind of brings us to these two different models that you talk about in your book of lupomorphism and baby morphism. And you talk about them as being two different sort of extremes of a model, behavioral model model for looking at dogs. And then you talk about, you know, maybe we need to look for something else. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Well, I mean, actually the the, the right exp- approach, the etiological approach would be canny morphism, basically treating the right. dog as a dog. Yes. Actually, this is not in the book, but what is in the <laughs> book is the, the two other X extremes. One X extreme was basically inherited by the time when we started the research. And this was the idea that 
since it turned out basically at the beginning of the 90s uh, by some very important genetic uh, work or by geneticists that dogs are wolves are identical 90-99% in their genes. Mm-hmm. The next seemingly logical step was to treat them as the same species. And right. obviously from this follows that what you have at home and you still call it as a dog, in biological terms, it's actually really a wolf. Now, obviously, I think the situation is very complicated, but... But then people were thinking, okay, you should interpret this situation as you as if you would have a wolf at home right. with all that kind of hierarchical viewing how people mm-hmm. are actually at that time assumed a wolf pack is working. Now, it, the, 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 the bad thing is that actually, or relatively, no, actually the good thing is <laughs> that it turned out that wolves are not hierarchical at all. I mean, they have a family and they are right. actually more similar to humans than we thought. So this whole lupiomorphic idea I think it's now probably or could be treated now as the past. So we should not care right. too much about it. Although some people still put it uh, in the media or in some publications, especially on the internet where there's less control over actually what is written there. Right. The other is the, the newer fashion to... And you can also actually see them in the streets now. So at that time, it was not so serious. It became more serious yeah. where people starting to look at the dog as if it would be a baby or a right. child or a toddler or how you name it what yeah. you could call it and and uh, this is i think it's again a problem because mm-hmm. we uh, we are taking the role of a human parent why we should have a the role of a caretaker and i think so my approach to this so what i started with is this this sort of canimorphism is mm-hmm. basically the idea of a collaborative partner and right. i sort of trying to uh, push the notion of of friendship, which actually is the real old saying that you have, you know, that the, the dogs are humans' best friends. So right. why just don't go along with this insight <laughs> and just treat them as a friend and not our baby or not our uh, enemy that we have to constantly fight over who is dominating the uh, right and uh, getting to the dog food. So because actually I never want to dominate a dog in the kitchen and eat its food. So, right. I, you know, it's it's totally crazy. But anyway, so it's really, I think the idea is that the dogs are obviously different species. They have their own and we have to respect them. And we have to be very careful that we actually really respect those needs and don't just try to force on them what we find as nice or we imagine that is important from our perspective. Right. And it, I mean, I just think it's so funny because it, it seems like it should be so obvious that we treat dogs like dogs, but that's not where we went. You know, we went in, I mean, I don't know what it's been like throughout history, but certainly in my lifetime, you know, as you said, we started off with viewing them as basically wolves and then switched to the other extreme, which is viewing them as, as you know, children. And neither one of them is really logical, but they've had great power and influence in terms of how we are treating and, and raising dogs and training them. And I I wonder a lot about this dynamic of, you know, if you do look at wild canids, and I don't know as much about how it works in free-ranging dogs, maybe you do, but you know, eventually the offspring grow up and disperse. But with our pet dogs, that doesn't typically happen. And I, I often wonder what kind of impacts, if, if any, that that has on behavior. And I mean, this sort of going off on a slightly different topic, but I think it's related is I think this also highlights just how flexible dogs are and 
in terms of behavior and, and social structure. And I'm wondering what if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, well, I, what I could add maybe that, that flexibility is a very important part of dog behavior. And I think uh, this is why where this um, humanization or this this uh, this baby morphism really is is uh, very dangerous because actually the dog won't tell the parents or the whoever the owner the caretakers that I don't feel well in the mm-hmm. real sense I mean so and this is a, a, actually from and it's a welfare issue I think in some sense that dogs are key, uh, are alone for long times so nobody really right cares about them they are in in the you know on the hundreds of floor of a huge buildings mm-hmm. probably many ten thousands of them without being exposed to anything because what should happen in a flat and but if the owner comes home you know after eight hours of work the wood the dog will still stand in front of the door and and wag the tail happily right although he had an awful day with nothing yeah. And, and it's really, that's what people don't really take, I think, very seriously. The, and many people ask, okay, why I, for example, don't have a dog? And that's the exact reason. I have no time for a dog mm-hmm. in my life. So I rather uh, sort of, uh, you know, stay away from being a dog <laughs> owner or actually not getting a dog because I know my dog would not be happy even right. if it would look happy when I'm looking at them. So so I think that's why. And also on the other side, I think people are a little bit... Um, how should I say it? Not don't invest enough energy to learn about dogs. So right. what is uh, being a dog and really learning their their language, their needs, they 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 understand what you want have to provide for a dog. It's more easier to be just like a human, you know, and try to do everything as you like, and you hope that your environment is, including the dog, is actually just uh, right. accommodate uh, to that situation. Right. And, and I think I think your point about that maybe the dog does have poor welfare and is suffering, but it's not obvious because they are still you know bonded to us and happy to see us, that I think that's a really interesting point because I think for many people, they, they think that it's working, right? They think, oh, it's fine to just lead our lives and not pay attention to the dog and it's fine until it's not. <laughs> I mean, you know, with the behavior problems that we see, obviously there are many times when they can't cope. Yes, I mean, yeah, so one of the behavior problems, but there are many dogs who actually don't show any obvious behavior problems. Right. I mean, I still have the, this very vivid memory that how we work at the department is that we invite dogs to us. So, and also, mm-hmm. of, of course, these owners are the, the very active ones who want right. to come, who are interested. And also, day dogs is usually not just well trained, but also exposed to long walks, to all kinds of challenges. They spend with them a lot of time. Yeah. But at some point we saw thought, okay, and what is with those dogs who don't want to come to us? I mean, right. I mean, and don't, don't, don't sorry, don't, don't, those dog owners. So we visited them, sort of ripped it by force. Okay, we said, okay, but we really want to come and do the experiment in your flat. And yeah. it turned out, obviously, this uh, this was never published because I had no time to, to deal with it. But actually, yeah. maybe just when we speak, I might actually be uh, on this topic later, that those dogs who couldn't test because they got so tired after one very uh, simple problem that we as researchers so, uh, fa- had to be faced them with a problem. Okay, get and find the food that is hidden, I don't wow. know, in the kitchen. And, you know, because they were not used to think. Right. So their life is just, you know, going around in the world and eating and sleeping and, right. and getting pets, or being petted. That's all. But to think about, to have any problem solving any problems and 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 having a working mind that is actually not present in those dogs so i hmm. and, and nobody knows about this because as i said dogs won't tell you that they are bored this is right you can say okay they're just sleeping or they you know having yeah happy. 
Right. I, I think the ones that sort of deal with it in a more active way that causes problems for humans, those dogs, maybe people will seek out training. But I agree that I think there's a large percentage of dogs that are just sort of suffering quietly or silently and, and no one knows. And I think, you know, that that's fascinating <laughs> that that these dogs that don't have the super active owners couldn't engage in those tests. Because so you published a study a few years ago, looking at untrained dogs, recreationally trained pet dogs and assistance and therapy dogs. And you found difference in their problem solving skills, correct? Yes, I mean, uh, there were actually not just me, there were many people who yes. were publishing because because I really think that the environment, the experience that these dogs have, have an effect on how well or how good or how fast they solve these problems. So I think uh, this is a, I mean, just can, can live or repeat myself that this is the owner's responsibility to expose the dogs to problems. I mean, even typical family dogs from basically right after birth, so to speak, right. that they have really a, a meaningful life. And you have to think, I mean, there are millions of neurons in the brain that mm-hmm. are designed or there for doing something. They don't just, I mean, for just for eating and sleeping, you might need uh, maybe a thousand neurons. I mean, right. <laughs> Right. millions of neurons so, right. so really you should engage those neurons this is this is part of a typical uh, life of a dog yeah and so what you guys found if i have this correct is that the assistants and the therapy dogs were better at problem solving uh, and then sort of number 2 was the recreationally trained pet dogs and then the untrained pet dogs were not very good at problem i'm just sort of echoing what you saw when you went to the homes well, yeah, that was parallel to that. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so, so these differences you really, really ha- see. Obviously, it also depends on the problem that the, these dogs are facing. Mm-hmm. But as a general trend, the more problems you solve in your life, the right. for you get. That's very trivial for any animal. It's true for, you know, not just for dogs, but for, for humans, but any other animal. So I think this is... Um, uh, but that people should understand it. And uh, also there's this trend to have these uh, games that uh, you can buy. I mean, these search games or intelligence uh, toy, inter- intelligent toy for dogs and so on. Mm-hmm. This is also something. But also I think what is another important part that the dogs also need this social aspect of this problem solving. So just yes. to an owner. I mean, throwing balls and doing uh, different things together, going for a walk into, a, a, into the woods and being exposed to problems, even if it's tiny, this could be very important for for dogs uh, as well. So I would encourage everybody to do that if you have a dog at home. Yeah. And we talk about when I have conversations with other trainers, we often talk about this helicoptering. I don't know if you have the same term there in Hungary, but we're the it was originally developed for parents with kids, but people do it with dogs too, where they will sort of swoop in, you know, if there is a problem that does need to be solved, they'll sort of swoop in and like rescue <laughs> the dog yes, or the kid so that they don't have yes. to figure it out on their own. And that that's actually probably harmful. As it's, at some point, us after some point it's harmful. And, and that's also the, actually, as you said, it also happens in humans and that's actually contributes to that, that humans need now more time to gr- being grown up mm-hmm. as, uh, <laughs> yeah. as many years ago. And I think uh, it's a complicated process, I understand. And uh, right. But that's why I'm saying that people, I mean, who people who are getting dogs, they, I think before they get a dog, they have sort of collect this knowledge somehow from books or from internet, from dog trainers, actually how to care for animal in the in the right way. 
Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, do you have any sense? I don't know if you guys have looked at this or not, but do you think that the methods used to train the dogs also can impact problem solving in terms of positive reinforcement or doing some kind of shaping where the dog or even the imitation training where dogs maybe have a little bit more freedom to make decisions versus punishment-based training? Do you have a sense on how that might impact problem solving skills? Well, I mean, it's difficult to do complex studies because mm-hmm. um, dogs can be trained and are trained very differently, uh, yeah. even as the individual, because especially in Hungary, dog owners go to one dog school, then switch to another one. Yes. And so on. But in general, I think it's just the case with humans. So the more ways the dog is trained, I mean, especially on the, I mean, in this case, obviously, uh, positive trainings that have positive feedbacks. Yeah. But in my view, my view, actually, even those um, interactions, which we could tr- call training, that you have a social re- reinforced interaction. And, and we are seem, seem to find uh, in our studies, some of them are still not really published, that dogs, especially uh, the puppies, are very open and they are very open to get social feedback from the person and they are also interested in what we are doing yes. and if training can be based on that so not just that they work for the food but they right. work for being in interaction with the dog owner obviously it's more demanding both energetically mm-hmm. <laughs> from the person and both in time wise but i think this is the way because i mean you just consider and we can for this also use the example of the wolves I mean, the wolf mother is not reinforcing the puppy by giving them a little food if he's doing something right. right. So even in humans, I mean, obviously we sort of reinforce our children a little bit here and there when they are a few years old, but typically there's no real sort of external reinforcement. The reinforcement is, okay, good boy, or you get a little petting on your head, or the people, mm-hmm. the parents are just happy, laughing, or you know, enjoying themselves. And you can still achieve a lot using these methods. So this could be very easily transferred uh, for dogs. And, and that's why I'm sort of a bit, bit sad if I see that people having this huge bag of, uh, of uh, rewards on, uh, on their belt with food. Yeah. And the poor dog is just basically trying to figure out, okay, how I can get this, <laughs> this food in the next 10 minutes. So this is not actually reminding me for this baby morphism. And, you know, this is very interesting because although we're talking about baby morphism, I mean, the term is that I'm using, but basically this is what's happening. On the other hand, there are lots of these, uh, especially in dog training, how you train the dog, that's not at all how how you're training babies. Right, right, yeah. People are not really seeing this this paradox, which I find is a paradox. Now, if if the dog is a baby, let's, I mean, just hypothesize, then we should treat them as a baby in terms of training as well. But no, what we want is, uh, uh, in that case, that the dog is like more like an animal in a circus. Uh, you mean uh-huh. that he has to go for the, for the food, and if you are okay, then you get your reward, so to speak. And if you're not, then you in good situations, you don't get anything. So I think there's a lot of things to do to make uh, the minds of uh, people, including sometimes actually scientists as well, clear yeah. about this. But you also mentioned the the the, 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 the imitation, so social learning. Yeah, I think is a huge. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say discovery because the dogs did it before as well. <laughs> right. But I think uh, to to establish these methods that we call met this method that we call um, do as I do. So when the dog actually is is taught to imitate the human to some extent. 
this has, I mean, I can be totally uh, enthusiastic about this and, and talk very long about it because it's really the natural model how the dog should learn and or actually all social animals should learn. Right, right, right. And and it gives, has a huge potential. And I'm not complaining. So, I mean, we published the first study in 2006. So it's 14 years ago. Right. It's growing, but I mean... I'm not really satisfied with the speed. <laughs> so anyway, maybe it will change. Yeah, well, I have I have so many questions, but, or you know, thoughts and questions on based on what you said, because it sounds to me like kind of what you're saying is we're really underestimating the power of our social relationship with dogs and how we can use that. And I, I'm almost hesitant to even say train because maybe teach is you know, teach them how to sort of interact effectively in our world and our family lives. And one theme that's been coming up among trainers more and more recently is this idea of maybe we should really focus a lot less on on teaching dogs how to sit and down and, and all that and focus more on like, you, you know, this sort of like things like problem solving skills and understanding their needs and making sure that we're meeting these needs. And that maybe some of these other behaviors that we work so hard on will kind of come more naturally because the dogs won't be suffering so much and and they will they are responsive to our social cues but if i think if the relationship is poor i was just talking to monique udell and she was talking about how if cats they they've done some research on cats that cats will learn that people are kind of ignoring them and then they disengage and i don't it sounds like dogs don't do that to quite the same extent but i wonder if there's some component of that is that you know if if we're not engaging with them enough that they're not going to be as responsive to our social cues or able to read us as well yes i think i i agree the dogs so so i think the problem is that when you are getting i mean assume you're getting a puppy Normally, any canine animal, so wolf uh, pups or dog puppies, they spend their whole day until, I don't know, one year old, 24 hours together with social beings. So the interact. Now, if you get a puppy, then you spend with the puppy two or three hours most because obviously you have to go shopping and work and so on. But this is not the same. And then the problem is, okay, now, if I still want to train my puppy to sit or stay, what is the most efficient method to do Mm -hmm. it? The most efficient method is, okay, is providing some food, clicker training, you name it. Now, once you set this this track that this is how your life is going to be, I mean, from the first of the talk, it's very difficult to say that sometimes I'm just not happy. Who cares if you are happy if I can get some food? But what we have done yesterday, just we just go along this. So, and on the other hand, this is another problem that although, uh, because we are living, I mean, not we, but many people are living in cities, Mm -hmm. I can really see that you have to get the dog under some control. Right. And for that, it's obvious you need this sit, stay, leash, walk, and all that. So I can understand the problem of uh, how to teach and mm-hmm. train and, and the dog. But yes, it's still the dogs are still dogs. So I really think about it. And as I said, we will publish soon, I hope soon, uh, some more results on puppies and how they yeah. are, how much they are interested in the social aspects. Right. And maybe dog trainers can then this sort of... Um, translate into improving their uh, dog training skills, for example, what you do in a puppy school yeah. uh, and, yeah. and all this in enforce this uh, social relationship and have right. what you just mentioned that that the social feedback is actually acts as a reward uh, for, for those puppies later on as well. 
Well, I'm very excited to see that research. So I look forward to that. (laughs) So back to imitation. So I'm curious when you guys, when you taught the dogs to imitate, did Mm -hmm. you use food for that or were you using social reinforcement? Well, uh, it depends also on the dog. So what you have, I mean, so if you don't need to do it, I mean, if you don't need to do it because the dog is uh, trained or experienced or it's anyway a social dog or it's a younger dog so that was not really um, exposed to too much uh, classical uh, this type of training then you can start without actually much food (laughs) but it's actually not forbidden the the problem is that what but and this is again this little bit similar the issue that we discussed before that imitation so basically the tendency that the dog will actually do what you just have done or what you can see in your behavior is a very spontaneous situation so that happens Mm -hmm. the problem is that during development what the dog is taught by the owner that actually they should not do it because you know if i'm getting a newspaper from somewhere and try to you know read it then the dog should not actually do it so you said okay don't do it if you do this and this, then the dog is always told not to do. So you actually, what you do is you de-learn the dog, you de- or you are sort of teaching against this natural imitation uh-huh. ability. So if you are now having a dog you, and you decide as an owner, okay, now I want to teach the dog to do as I do game or this type of yeah. interaction, then you should go back to the beginning and now convince the dog not, okay, now <laughs> this time, however, you can imitate me. And to, right. to make the dog to understand this whole new situation, I think um, you need some other means as well. So here, I think food can have a role, Yeah. but uh, dogs are very on, uh, different. So some dogs need really more training to get back to this original <laughs> stage yeah. and some other dogs get it in one day or two. So it is very right. valuable. Yeah. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about why you like this method so much and, and the power of it. And then maybe later we can talk a little bit more about the other implications outside of training in terms of episodic memory and, and things like that? Well, I think uh, the do as I do method is really good because um, first of all, it's natural. So mm-hmm. this is what actually happens. I mean, this is all what, what we do with the, the children or even the babies. So right. it's very natural. I mean, if you have a baby uh, and you play with the baby, then it's very often, okay, I'm doing this. And then we, I'm watching what the baby is doing. And I said, okay, this is, where is your nose? And I put his nose. Now, where is my nose? So, I, right. so all this interaction. And and this is so natural. Obviously, with dogs, it's more difficult to arrange this because our conform body's shape is, is different, but it's possible to do something similar. So that's why I first case. Second reason is that when you are training a dog in a in a traditional method, then you are very passive. So basically, you are acting as a dispenser of food and yeah. you make this decision. Was it good? You get your food. If you are not good, then you don't get anything. Yeah. Now, in the in US I do, you have to be engaged. Thank you for listening to the Research Bites podcast. The full version of this podcast is available to Research Bites members. As a member, you will also get access to a monthly webinar and discussions on current research in dog behavior. You can get more information or join at www.sciencemattersllc.com. You can also find the link in the podcast description. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.